Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, this is Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm, Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you, add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm, Voluma XC, and reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm, Velour XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site, redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. It's easy to get lost in the latest true crime podcast or your favorite binge-worthy show. But what about your own story? That's the most important story of all, and therapy helps you write it. BetterHelp Therapy is 100% online and designed to be convenient and flexible enough to squeeze in between the next episode on your list. Get started today at BetterHelp.com slash pause for 10% off your first month. And welcome back to Scarred for Life, the podcast where we open up old wounds by looking back at the films that scared us as kids. I'm Terry. And I'm Mary Beth. Each episode, our special guest brings with them a movie that traumatized them as a child. This week, our special guest is Amelia Moses, the writer and director of Bleed With Me, which has been touring festivals and just played at the Nightstream Film Festival. Welcome to the show, Amelia! Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for, for, for being here. I know Mary Beth is really excited to dig into uh, <laughs> this movie. Uh, but before we get there, uh, we kind of always try to take it back to the beginning. How did you get into horror? Was it as a kid? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think that's true of like so many people. You watch films way too young, but they just kind of stick with you. Um, and then you kind of mm -hmm. become obsessed with them as you get older. Uh, yeah, like I grew up watching a lot of movies because both my parents are big cinephiles and my dad especially like really likes horror films. So I remember watching a lot of like hammer horror films like from the 50s oh, and yeah. 60s. Yeah. And so that was kind of the go to for a while, like when I was a kid, because like that's kind of what my dad grew up on because he's from England and like those films just had such a kind of unique sensibility to them. And like the world building was really cool and they just felt really special. And so that was kind of like a good entry point, I guess, for me. It was like those kind of movies, like the original Dracula that they did and like Frankenstein and stuff with uh, Peter Cushing, I guess. Was it him? Yeah. 
Yes, I, uh, I my my dad was a big Universal horror fan, and then he was also a horror uh, a Hammer horror fan um, of like the horror of Dracula in particular. So for mm-hmm. me, that when I think of Dracula, I think of of the horror of Dracula with Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing, and yeah. So I I loved I love those Hammer movies. Yeah, and like the blood is so such a specific color of red that it just like it really is. stands out as well. Like, it's not that realistic, but I just think they had their own thing going on, their own aesthetic, which was great. So you talked about hammer horrors, hammer horror films. Were there any other um, horror favorites you have when you were growing up? Yeah, like well, a lot of the films I wanted to do for this podcast that were already taken um, were kind of fall into that category, like. I watched um, The Shining way too young as well. My mom really wanted to watch it. And she knew. She'd already seen it before. And I think I was like eight or nine. Oh, yeah. And uh, she's like, you can stop it. You know, if it's ever too much, we can stop it. And we got to the scene where he goes into room 237 and there's the woman. He's kissing the woman and her body's falling apart. And I was just like, nope, no, thank Ah. you. And I didn't watch it until like (laughs) years later with a friend. But again, that was just like you know, really sticks out as a memory. Um, and it's kind of similar experience with um, American Werewolf in London. I couldn't get past the scene where his dream sequence where, like, the Nazis come oh, in and Nazis. shoot his family. And it's just, you're just like, what the fuck? Like, everything, yeah. you know, there's a lot of disturbing stuff in that movie, but that's, like, next level, especially as a kid watching it alone. <laughs> like You're like, I don't, it's like, it feels, it's like so out of context, it makes no sense. And you're like, this is awful. Like, what is happening? His entire family is dead and these monsters are invading his home. Like, what is going on? <laughs> it's super disturbing. Yeah, so that one really sticks out, too. Yeah, those are the ones I kind of really remember, but, cool. you know, lots of kind of British horror films from, yeah, 60s cool. and 70s and and yeah. the original, like, um, Universal monster movies, too, as well, you know? Of course. Oh, cool. So as an adult, what, what would you say draws you to horror now? Is it the same kind of chasing the, the thrill as a kid or is it the, the way that, like, movies can be about different things? Or what is it that that you respond to, I guess? Yeah, I guess it's the kind of otherworldliness of them mm. that they aren't like they can be looking at things that are grounded in real life, but like they are rarely realistic um, yeah. and they're like more this kind of heightened version of the world. And so they're more like dreamlike and surreal. And there's such a huge range of stuff, too. Like there's tons of horror movies that I don't watch or have no interest in watching, like oh, torture, same. torture porn films or saw like that kind of stuff. Just like. This is not for me. And things that are maybe overly violent, too. But it really depends. I think I just like things that feel weird and and dreamlike and just really feel like something that you couldn't do in a different medium as well, Mm. you know? Um, So, yeah, and I don't really... Like, it's fun to be scared in films, but that's not necessarily why I go see horror films. Um, Because I don't think horror films have to be scary either, you know, for them to be a horror movie. Um, So I'm usually trying to look for stuff that's just going to be kind of weird or different or yeah. And not as like scary. Isn't like the main thing I'm going, going into when trying to choose a horror movie, I guess. Cool. And so do you ever, like you talked about not really liking, like going for the scary aspects. So like, do you like the dread, like the existentialism, that kind of thing from horror? Yeah. Like that's the stuff that I find the hardest. Like everyone kind of talks about hereditary being such a scary film of like, the last few years or whatever but it really did have that feeling of like nothing will ever be okay again (laughs) and like that's just like a really you know okay you know someone jumping out of you know a jump scare or whatever of like a creepy person in a hallway like sure you're scared for a second but when films are able to just get under your skin and you're just like really really that deep sense of dread is um Yeah, yeah, it's a lot. Like, another film I saw recently that I liked was uh, Bavarium. That definitely had that existential dread to it as well. It's really good. I'd recommend it. But it has that feeling where you're just like, everything is not okay. (laughs) And it's just, like, (laughs) on such a big (laughs) scale, too. Like, it's not... I don't know. Yeah, I guess that's the kind of existentialism-ness of it. I'm excited to talk about your movie then, because your movie made me feel full of dread in a good way. So I'm very excited. Oh, <laughs> I'm happy to hear that. <laughs> oh, like I can definitely see that influence on it. And so you mentioned a couple of your favorite horror movies as an adult, but do you have any others that you really enjoy or like to revisit? Yeah, like like Rosemary's Baby probably is always a good mm. one to kind of revisit. Ooh. And like 
one of the films, I don't know when I watched it, but that I think has been a big influence for me has been Repulsion um, because it's so oh. contained and so like, you know, really just about one person's perspective and very ambiguous as well. Like you don't really know what's going on in that film. So it's such yeah. a contained story. Um, so I really like that film. Um, to kind of revisit and yeah sorry I don't, I'm drawing a blank which is oh, that's what ha- I, I always feel bad asking those questions yeah. I know when I ask them I'm like I have forgotten every movie I have ever seen exactly yeah, I'm <laughs> just like, like, I, don't, I can't name a single film like what is happening <laughs> exactly I'm like someone's like well, my favorite is when people ask me like oh can you recommend a horror movie and I'm like I don't know <laughs> I've never yeah. watched a horror movie before. That always backfires like, on me whenever someone about? asks me that. I know. It's awful. And now that it's Halloween, all my coworkers like, you like horror movies? And I'm like, oh, no. No. Yeah. Oh, no. That's when you like recommend something like Martyrs. Go watch Martyrs. <laughs> I've never actually seen that. I think I'm too scared. It sounds really intense and disturbing. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, if you don't like like the saw movies and this is sort of like on a different level although i mean it has yeah. more yeah. to say i would say than yeah, like sure. the americanized like torture porn quote-unquote movies that mm-hmm. that get labeled that as such but it is definitely i i've seen it once and i don't really ever have a desire to watch it again mm-hmm. so yeah definitely but that's always my go-to <laughs> you want to see something really fucked up go watch martyrs go all watch right martyrs. we're done <laughs> um so you ha- I, i'm i'm really what surprised me so much was that you not only have Bleed With Me, which we're here to talk about, but you also have another movie that has been t- doing festival runs at the same time. What is that like having two films in a festival at the same time? Like the coolest thing ever, and especially because like they're your fe- like your first features, right? So like that's amazing. Yeah, it's super surreal, especially <laughs> considering like there's no in-person festivals. Um, like yeah. my friend, when I told her that Bloodthirsty got into Fantastic Fest. She was like, wow, you release uh, two films in a year and the world ends. Like, this timing is just so ridiculous. But, like, <laughs> that's just so many people, obviously. That's totally not unique to me in any way. But um, it's still quite strange because I definitely thought this was going to be, like, a big year of traveling and stuff. And, of course, that didn't happen. Um, and I didn't, I didn't know that, you know, we finished Bloodthirsty way quicker than I thought we would, mainly because of Fantastic Fest. So um, because we got into the festival with a work in progress and then it was like, okay, got to finish the film in time. Um, So it was just kind of strange timing. And I, you know, I didn't really expect it to go down this way, but sometimes you shoot a project a year apart and then, you know, they come out around the same time, but it was kind of just a crazy coincidence. Yeah, um, it, it's so it's so bizarre this this year because like I had so many plans of of actually going to festivals um, as obviously you did too with your movie and it's such a a weird time to to have all of these virtual fests but I have to say that I'm 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 really impressed with what festivals have been turning out this year on a on a virtual level at least. Yeah, completely. Um, I think that they're trying to do a lot to still stay exciting and stuff and you know, get a lot of engagement. And I think especially something like Nightstream is doing a really great job at that. Yeah, I'm we're in the in the thick of it, listeners, while we're recording this. And um, I've been really impressed with um, the way that all the technology that they've been using that I've been able to watch it on my actual TV, as opposed to having to connect my laptop to my TV and watch and stuff. So yeah, it's been Nightstream has been really good so far. Um, so can you tell our listeners a little bit about Bleed With Me, which just played at Nightstream and kind of let them know what it's about? The synopsis, I guess you would say, is about um, a young woman who's a bit of a kind of awkward introvert. And she's invited to uh, kind of have a getaway at this uh, winter cabin with her friend and her friend's boyfriend. And over the course of the film, she starts to kind of experience these weird sleep paralysis incidents and wakes up with weird cuts on her arms. And she becomes her, her becomes convinced that her friend is uh, drugging her and trying to steal her blood. And I kind of describe it as like a descent into madness film, um, kind of like repulsion, where you're just kind of like things just get worse and worse and you kind of don't really know you know, what's real and what's not. Hell yeah. Oh my gosh. I love it. I, I am just like, I'm obsessed with like movies about female friendships and stuff like that. And this was like absolutely gorgeous. And so one of the things I actually wanted to talk about is the season, because there's been a lot of really awesome 
horror movies recently that are based in the winter time, and especially like movies that I've seen about kind of complicated women in the winter time. And I was wondering, why did you want to set it in the in the middle of winter? Yeah, I guess the winter just has that really like isolating feel, um, and yeah. it's both kind of beautiful and creepy at the same time so it's very yeah. atmospheric and uh i guess too like i definitely knew i wanted to, it to be a cabin in the woods film and yeah. especially since the the threat is internal rather than external the reasons like you need something else to to not let the characters leave um whereas if it's set yeah. in the summer it's like theoretically you could just like walk down the road you know but if you're like <laughs> snowed in and we had a fuck ton of snow um you know it definitely gives a different feel like it's like in the shining as well like they're obviously yeah. very isolated but on top of that it's like at the end of that film like you just feel like they cannot leave like it's just not an right. option and so i yeah. think that it adds a level of tension um to the film cool. And then I, the gender dynamics in this film are awesome, especially because you have a, the boyfriend involved in it. So I just wanted to hear more about like what you wanted to do with the gender dynamics and why you had a guy in it rather than just the two women and just like kind of what your thought process was behind that. Yeah, I feel like when I was writing the script, sometimes people would say that they didn't really know why or like they didn't really kind of know the boyfriend character as well and like that he felt maybe a bit more simplistic as a character but I was kind of okay with that because I was like well the male character can be one dimensional that's fine by me yes um you know (laughs) to some extent obviously but um yeah and I think he kind of works as like a foil for the two female characters and I think that um he is needed to kind of shift that dynamic because I think sometimes people communicate with each other through other people, if that makes sense. Um, and also when you have like a couple and then like a single person and especially it's like Emily's the middle, um, like she's the connecting factor between the three of them. Yeah. Right? And so everything is kind of funneled through her. And so then when the dynamic shifts and maybe like Brendan and Rowan have their own sort of like friendship growing or whatever it is, like she's going to be impacted by that because like she's no longer needed to the same degree. And I feel like this is something I've seen in dynamics that I've seen in myself or through friends or whatever, where like when you know someone through their partner, it's like you only know them through their partner. And it's very difficult to right. like yeah. kind of accept, like establish your own friendship with them because you only know them through this other person. And it just kind of like creates a weird feeling sometimes and a weird dynamic. So that was something that I feel like I haven't really seen a lot. And I thought was a really interesting dynamic. Um, it, it was one of the things that really kind of jumped out at me uh, rewatching it again for the, for this, for the podcast too, is the way that the kind of power dynamics shift between the three characters. And um, cause it kind of goes in like, like you were mentioning where um, you have this, this couple and you have Rowan who's sort of like the third wheel, but there's a moment in the middle of the movie where Rowan and, um, and the boyfriend, Brendan start to like have a, a friendship and you can see the kind of like change in Emily's character as, as she's like, well, wait, I'm supposed to be the kind of like, the the spoke that these wheels are out of and now it's like i feel like i'm on the outside looking in and so there's some interesting power dynamics at at play here i thought yeah thank you that was definitely something that was obviously very intentional um i guess i was kind of looking at it like i don't know if i already said this but um like a hierarchy of intimacy as well so like um emily likes the idea that she knows Rowan more than Brendan does and vice versa knows Brendan more than Rowan does. And I think people, I've also seen that in people sometimes where like you kind of, you enjoy the fact that you know someone more than someone else. And it becomes like, it becomes a power trip a little bit of like Mm -hmm. the fact that you feel more, and I don't mean sexual intimacy, just in terms of like friendship intimacy. Um, you know, that person like on a deeper level and you are like prideful of that, I guess. Yeah. And I was, what you said something that I really like 
connected with was, and you said like Brendan um, was a simplistic character. And I love that though, because in so many horror movies, like there's always like the wife character who's pretty one dimensional. And it was really cool to see it flipped on his head a little bit with Brendan. Not that he was a simplistic character, I don't think, but it was kind of cool to like, he didn't get as much attention and like emotional depth as the two women characters, which is a really awesome, I think, reversal of what we usually see in those dynamics. So mm-hmm. I did it just, I just appreciated his character and like having him in there in the mix um, especially with that hierarchy of intimacy, which you talked about. Mm-hmm. And so female friendships are complicated. And I, <laughs> and like, <laughs> yes, there's so definitely. much, there's so, there's so much talked about where it's like women can't be friends and blah, blah, blah. And I just, this movie is amazing. Cause I feel like it doesn't really have an answer and it takes that idea of female friendships and obviously things break bad, but I think it's even more complicated with that. And I just wanted like to hear more about your thoughts on female friendships and like depicting that side of relationship dynamics, like friendship rather than intimacy, like or sexual intimacy. Yeah, I feel like um, so many films focus on a romantic relationship as the main story. And that's just like across the board, like sometimes even a film's not about that, that has to be like shoehorned in somehow. So oh, I definitely yeah. didn't, I wanted to look at something that, was platonic though i feel like some people who've watched the film do feel like there's a bit of a line where it's like maybe there's something romantic there and it's funny because i remember when we're um editing um one of the scenes where like very early on and you're kind of introduced to the dynamic between rowan and emily that it really felt like rowan has romantic feelings for emily and that wasn't what i was trying to do but then my editor was saying like idealizing someone and kind of looking up to them and versus like romantic love like it's when you're just like seeing someone's face like he was like how do you like differentiate that you know like it's because it's quite a specific thing to look at someone with admiration i guess and i feel like as moviegoers we always assume it's romantic because that's kind of what we've been like trained to do like throughout cinema is like okay it's always it's usually there's some romantic you know undercurrent going on um and then obviously that has a lot to do with you know the way like you know gay relationships are going to be portrayed or not because we're obviously a lot of cinema history is very kind of like you know going to be about straight relationships um or has been about straight relationships um Mm -hmm. but i think like so it wasn't intentional there was any sort of kind of romantic nature to their friendship but i think at the same time it, it, did, it obviously doesn't bother me because i think like you're saying female friendships are really complex and sometimes it is a bit in a weird arena you know of like how do i really feel about this person because they can be so intense and so loving and intimate but then also can have this flip side of you know jealousy or tension or kind of they can just be really intense, I guess. And I wanted to kind of explore those nuances. Um, I, we, I did a Q and a, um, with, uh, Lee Marshall who plays Rowan and Lauren Beatty, who plays Emily. And I felt the need, we all kind of felt the need to like defend female friendships. And we're like, there's obviously positive things too. And like, this is just one side of it and blah, blah, blah. And it was kind of funny. Cause I was like, why do we have to, you know, um, we can, we should be able to look at whatever we want to look at. You know what I mean? Like, obviously I, the film isn't saying that yeah. all women are going to be like, you know, quote unquote crazy no. or whatever. Um, but it's funny. Cause I feel like when you have a really female focused film, there is a fear that it has to represent like a wide range of women or all women, which is obviously impossible yeah. to do. Um, so it was funny. Cause it, I just, Obviously, you should. There should be positive portrayals of female friendships too. But obviously, in this film, it was just trying to look at something like a more twisted side of things, you know. Well, and I loved the movie because it is a really it's it's a good codependency, and I feel like that's not often seen in like portrayals of female friendship and horror. And in the review I wrote about this movie, I talked about how I identified with that kind of like weird line between intimacy, like sexual attraction, and just like really strong friendship, and how it's really hard to tell. And especially when like you're really close with someone, it's difficult to kind of parse out your feelings. And I just thought it was so cool to really I haven't really seen that on screen in what I in the movies I've watched, so it was awesome to kind of see that nuanced way that women interact with each other like 
portrayed in such a cool way in a way that i actually really related to though my friends have not stolen my blood though i will say yeah the blood the <laughs> blood stuff hasn't happened yet yeah exactly less relatable yeah <laughs> yeah but like most <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway <laughs> okay we can cut this out and this doesn't have to be like but was she a vampire because i was like i kind of thought it was a vampire movie at the end and i was really excited <laughs> I was really excited. Yeah, I'm whatever you want it to be. It is, I guess. Um, cool. Just okay. A co- cop out answer, but like there was no. definitely a, a, a version of the script. You know what? It wasn't even a script at that point. It was just a version in my head where she was. It was much more like she Emily needs Rowan's blood, and Brendan and her have brought Rowan there in order to like have Emily feed on her, um, but. I just felt like the vampire stuff is being done a lot and I didn't really know mm-hmm. what I was like, what kind of, what I was bringing to the table that was new. So okay. I kind of went away from that idea, but obviously it's using a lot of the kind of vampiric imagery and tropes, but I, I never want to call it a vampire film because I don't want people to have expectations that there's going to be vampires because there's oh, no yeah. vampires. Oh, yeah. 100 percent. i just watched it and i was like i am just going to call this a vampire movie in my head and so thank you yeah, yeah. For, for allowing me to do that um i just also am obsessed with vampires so i think i just want <laughs> yeah oh, me i just want me everything too, to be sure, vampires for sure <laughs> well then it's a vampire movie let's do it um so we have talked about bleed with me and your career so far but um amelia what movie are we talking about today so the movie I chose to talk about is The Birds. Okay, The Birds. So a well so for those of you who haven't seen The Birds, a wealthy San Francisco socialite pursues a potential boyfriend in a small North Car- North Carolina god in a small northern California town that slowly takes a turn for the bizarre when birds of all kinds suddenly begin to attack people. Okay, so Amelia Paint us a picture. How old were you when you first saw the birds? What was the scenario? Like, tell us the sto- your your horror story, basically. So this is gonna be super boring, but I actually don't remember the first time I watched this movie. Um, but I Fair feel enough. like I was probably like nine or ten because I remember watching a lot of Hitchcock okay. films around that time, and I was like obsessed with um, North by Northwest and like Rear Window and stuff. Um, what a cool childhood, casual, just yeah, like loving yeah, Hitchcock no, and Hammer yeah, Horror. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I texted my dad before watching the film because I was like, maybe he'll know. And he said seven or eight. And I was like, that feels pretty young. And then that doesn't surprise <laughs> me, though, because I definitely watched a lot of films, maybe a little too young. And I've just always been scared of birds. They just like especially crows and seagulls. So you can kind of see where it's going on that front. Um, yes. And... Uh, yeah, and I kind of didn't really put the pieces together until more recently. And I was like, maybe it's because I watched the birds at really young. And now it just like, it has embedded itself into my psyche. Because um, they, yeah, they just really freak me out. And people always always ask me like, well, what are you scared of? And I'm like, I'm scared they're going to poke my eyes out. And then rewatching the film today, I was like, oh my God, there's a scene where they poke someone's eyes out. Like, this must have been where it came from. Like, yeah. <laughs> So I think it, like, oh I don't, God. there was no clear, you know, memory of watching it, but I definitely have felt the way it seeped into me over the years. So in revisiting it, though, um, besides the eyes getting poked out, were there any sequences or scenes that you, like, kind of jogged your memory um, about being scared as a kid watching it? Yeah, well, the scene, the playground scene, I feel like is the most iconic. And so that definitely, like, I remembered that the most clearly, oh, yeah. probably. Just because of the way it's edited, too, like mm-hmm. just going back and forth, and then there's just like one bird, and then two, and then all of a sudden she goes back and there's like a hundred or whatever. Um, but the scene that I really stood out rewatching it was um, at the end when they're stuck in the house, basically just before they leave or just before uh, Tippy Hendren's character is attacked in the attic. They, um, oh, they yeah. boarded up all the windows and stuff and like the power goes out. So it's just lit by like candlelight and the fire. And you do- like all you hear are the birds outside and you see them pecking at the door and there's a shot of the oh, door yeah. and you just see these like beaks coming through and that I totally had forgotten about that shot or that scene. And that really was like, oh, that's really freaky. <laughs> like the way they're trying to get through the door and like you don't you only hear the birds like you don't really hear 
There's no dialogue. It's quite quiet. There's no music. And you don't even really hear the sounds of the characters. Like you just hear the birds and it's really creepy. I, I love the score because there is no score. Um, it's just all electronic weird bird sounds that are like mimicked with instruments. And like Hitchcock worked with the composer to make like a completely scoreless movie. And it was just all sound effects, which I think is. Okay. Is there really, really no music? Yeah. Because I didn't notice until wow. the end. And then I, but I was like, I don't remember hearing any music. And so I was like, there has to be at yeah. some point, but maybe there's no, none. it's oh. all, no, it's all um, just like electronic bird sound effects. Okay. Because in the credits at the beginning, it said Bernard Herman was like a sound consultant or something. Like it was a, yeah. a different title and it wasn't composer. And I was like, that's really weird. Why would they not like call him the composer? Or maybe he didn't compose the music. But this makes a lot of sense now because there is no music. It's like a couple moments of like kids singing and like a little bit of that, but it's mostly he did like he was um he did like electrical sound production and and Hitchcock really didn't want to have a conventional score. Um, mm-hmm. so there's like the sound effects. There's like a couple little points of sparse music, but it's mostly silent. And I think that it is so cool. And it's just like even creepier that way. And it's what's even more interesting is like. When I first saw this movie too, I didn't notice it until um, I was I watched it for class, and um, my professor had to point it out. Like you don't really notice, which is so interesting. I d- totally didn't notice until you just brought it up. Honestly, <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't notice it at all until until you just brought it up, Mary Beth. That it's uh, that it, you're absolutely right. I, I was thinking back and because you think of like Hitchcock and you think of some of his like iconic scores and there really yeah. isn't that in this at all. And I, I didn't even really notice it. That's weird. I know. So also, Amelia, this was Terry's first time watching The Birds. Oh, so nice. Okay. Apparently not. Um, oh, well, okay. <laughs> first time so, you remember watching The Birds. Yeah, so it, it's funny because like I have I I was like oh I'm really excited to finally watch this movie for the first time and so I kind of threw that up on Twitter like I'm watching it for the first time, and my brother tweets at me and he's like uh, no we watched this like it must have been about like twelve years ago twelve years ago yeah he said I think it was about like twelve or fifteen years ago that we watched this and I'm like I have absolutely no recollection oh, of so watching funny. this movie and it's what's weird is that even watching this now like other than the iconic moments that happen I mean it, like you mentioned with with the playground scene where it's slowly building the the birds behind her I I if you would I, I if if I didn't know any better I would never have seen this movie before because I remember absolutely nothing about this film. It's so it's so bizarre. But yeah, this was technically my my first time watching it, I guess. So, thoughts? I want to hear your reaction. Yeah, so my thoughts on this movie, I I really liked it. Um I think some of the the way that they layered the birds was pro- was really cool, but I mean obviously in some ways those effects don't kind of hold up today, but just the way that that they used different ways of layering birds on the screen, having birds in the kids' hair in some attacks while having like the birds flying in front of of them. It is it was kind of cool to see. Um, I what I really kind of going back to the farmhouse, um, the ending scene of this movie. What really jumped out at me was how much of like a direct inspiration to maybe Night of the Living Dead this was because it it yeah. had a very neither the living dead feel to it if you replace the the birds with with zombies because they're i the way that he's boarding up the place and, and nailing it the way they're like trying to get in through the windows and they're attacking him as he's trying to pull the storm windows shut the way that it's all set up feels like a direct inspiration for what romero would do like five years later i didn't even think about that huh yeah no that's interesting Definitely when, like, yeah, cool. his, they're boarding up the windows and stuff. And when the bird is, like, pecking at his hand and... Oh, my God. So, Terry, what did you think of the movie, though? What did you? What were the, the thoughts, the feelings? Um, I, I thought it was... I, <laughs> I think this movie's very <laughs> queer. I think this movie's very queer. Oh, tell me more. I want to hear about your queer reading of the birds. Well, first of all, my, my, one, um, my one comment is that Melanie goes an awful long way for some D. That's my no first thought. No, no sh- Oh my god, the best like the best scheme to get dick I've ever seen. Like 
I was just like, this woman has way too much time on her hands and way too much money. Seriously. <laughs> it's I mean, ridiculous. You know, she buys this these lovebirds, which, hello, I mean, subtext right there. And then she goes to his apartment, finds out he's not there. And, and, you know, she could watch the birds over the weekend and then just give them to him on Monday. But no, she drives the 60 miles to this little town of Bodega Bay, asks someone where they live, has to, like, drive around the entire bay to this farmhouse and decides that she doesn't want to do that because she wants to surprise him. So she takes the boat and goes cuts across the... I mean, like, the amount <laughs> that she has to go through to get some D is just... Girl... Well, and then it, it brings about the apocalypse. So, like, oops, sorry about it. Yeah, good point, actually. That's what happens. That's where, like, my my kind of queer reading. Oh, I just thought that was a really good point. And I'm assuming Terry's <laughs> going to expand on that. But it's like, yeah, she tries to hook up with this guy and it just goes terribly wrong, but for completely different reasons. Like, by any... I mean, any standards today, that's, like, the creepiest shit ever. Like, that's stalker behavior. <laughs> well, especially if, like, the genders were reversed. Like, I don't think people 100%. would be looking at this movie in the same in the same way, because it is very stalkerish. I mean, yeah, she I was this thinking dude the same down. Thing. Yeah. If the, like, if it was a gender reversal, like, you'd just be like, that guy's a total creep. So, Terry, tell us more about this quit reading. My reading of this movie is that Melanie brings a chaotic bisexual energy to this town, and that is why the birds come and attack. Yes! Um, <laughs> like, the way that when one of the first people she meets is, is Annie, the school teacher, who has this amazingly gorgeous husky voice. And I swear to God, they're just looking each other up and down. A hundred percent. Yeah. They were full on flirting. Full on so flirting. flirting. Well, and I loved later on because, um, like, she goes back to her because she has to, decides to stay for the weekend, and so she wants to like rent her a room in her apartment, <laughs> and like she gets there and and Annie is dressed in like a nightgown, yeah, and she's offering her brandy. And they're talk it, ostensibly they're talking about this man who she makes a comment maybe there's never been anything between Mitch and any girl and I'm like oh. yeah confirmed bachelor he's gay interesting um, yeah, yeah, yeah. good point good point <laughs> and they seem so much more interested in each other in this conversation than this this stupid boy they also have way more chemistry than oh my god do they do have chemistry the yeah it's just like straight off the bat they have instant chemistry. I yeah, and I, I love them together. I, I wanted them to have more scenes together than with the man because I'll be honest, Mitch Brenner is boring. He is like <laughs> he is he's rude. He's like he's gruff in that in that way that like move that that men are portrayed in movies of like the the fifties and the sixties. He's very like he every single time he talks to her, it's almost like he's interrogating her as instead of like having like a real conversation. I'm just like, this guy, you drove all this way for this most boring ass dick ever. Go <laughs> be with Annie. Yeah, completely. <laughs> Please be with Annie. That would be so much cooler. I mean, I don't know if Hitchcock would do that, but we should write a spinoff <laughs> where they run off together and live in the post-apocalyptic wasteland. <laughs> well, and the way that this this movie like tackles that it's it's like everyone blames her when when you know when she is in in town and she's like in this in this restaurant one of the the ladies like gets into kind of hysterics and and, and shouts that it's all because you came to town and it's like I, I I feel like it's this little very straight heteronormative town that she brings this crazy amount of sexuality and like powerfulness and she's coming from san francisco which let i, I mean you're setting it in in a town these people are from this the city of san francisco where like it was it's a it's a gay mecca i just i feel like that there is like this idea of this this very queer energy entering this town and causing the apocalypse have either of you guys read the original short story I haven't, but I, have I do not. know that it's by uh, the the same writer uh, who wrote Rebecca, yeah. which is also another queer well, coded I heard story. Recently, that Daphne du Maurier was gay, but I haven't actually researched that, so don't quote me on that. But I'm just I, that came into my mind um, thinking about the fact that she wrote the book. But I don't know if yeah, what I, the characters are like in the book either. But I'm assuming there's some it's, parallels. It's very different. I think the only thing that um, 
from what I, I, I read like a, a plot synopsis of it that kind of went into like details of what it's about. And I think other than the coastal setting and the fact that birds are attacking, I don't think uh, Hitchcock took anything else from the story. Oh, okay, in terms of the characters? Yeah. yeah. But yeah, it, it's it's interesting that it's it's based on a on a short story by the a woman that also wrote Rebecca that again is very queer coded, mm-hmm. and like you said when when I was looking into it, everyone seems to want to deny that there that there was like that she had um, that she was anything other than straight, but like there was a lot of people coming forward with 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 uh, discussions of of her having either romantic interest toward or actually being in a relationship with other women. So I I do feel like that of that there's that there's that kind of time of that that time period where you have like Shirley Jackson and you have um gosh what is what is her name is it is it Daphne Daphne DeMaurier yeah Daphne DeMaurier yeah DeMaurier I I feel like especially with 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 women writer there was a lot of, of of closeted writers in this in this time period that they were writing in yeah she also wrote don't look now mm-hmm or the oh. short the short story don't look now yeah. and it was adapted into the feature length film. So I don't think I realized that like the kind of big influence she's really had on the horror genre. Completely. Which is really yeah. cool. Like those are three huge films. Exactly. Yeah. They're humongous and the birds is like cited as such like a classic, but it's like but a woman initially wrote it and I think that's it's so interesting how that's not talked about that often and I know it's just like an annotation of a short story or a novel, but I still think it's important to be like hey this this woman wrote a lot of horror stuff and she inspired a lot of like amazing directors and i like you know this makes me think of the movie shirley and how i want daphne demoria to get her own shirley version or her own like feminist empowerment film or like reclamation of who she is i also when i was looking at this i was also seeing um this the the, the kind of family structure of the benders oh brenner my bad yeah, the brenner. brenner family the brenner family <laughs> because like you have like what are words <laughs> you have question. like you have lydia the, the matriarch of the family who is talking about how her husband died four years ago and you know she doesn't have this male influence in the family you have mitch brenner being in like kind of being coming up every weekend to spend time with his mother by the end of the film they've sort of created this like family unit in a in a weird sort of way with like his younger sister with <laughs> a shell-shocked um <laughs> melanie with like the mother and it's it's such a a weirdly almost i don't know it feels kind of incestual this the relationship with, oh, between him his mom his dead father who his painting is like prominently displayed in the house. It, it's it's very I, I don't know. I I just get this really weird energy from this family. Like if it was taken in, in any other direction, we would have another psycho on our hands. Yeah, well, the mother figure for sure. Like obviously, is very different than Psycho, but the kind of yeah, mother son. I feel like someone makes a reference to Oedipal at one point. I think the school teacher does, Annie. She does, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's right. And then I was like, oh, Hitchcock, yeah, that's <laughs> a continuous thing he's exploring. Well, and like even in Psycho, the, you know, he was a taxidermist and he had like an owl and a bunch of birds like taxidermied in his office. And so you go from that to like full on bird assault. Um I don't know. I, I feel like there might be something there. Well, and mothers not wanting their son to then have a partner too. Like, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, again, it's not really the same in Psycho, but I feel like that's kind of the dynamic that there's a bit of a parallel there. And then at the yeah. end, the mom is like holding Tippi Hendren and like lovingly, like, "Oh, I accept you as my daughter-in-law," which is like a weird thing because yeah, she's like on the verge of death, and there's birds everywhere. <laughs> but it's like, "Oh, I've accepted you into my family." But also that that scene where Melanie is like kind of almost sacrifices herself to the birds. It's kind of I don't want to say sexual, but like she's like moaning, oh, Mitch, oh, like over yeah. and over and over that again. That was so weird. And it's it's very like shot in an almost zealously um, ec- ecstatic way, like ecstasy and pain in this moment of like giving herself to to the birds in in the bedroom i it's it's such a weird i don't know there's a lot of weird psychosexual stuff that i feel is just brimming under the surface of this movie because also wasn't that the scene where she thought there was going to be like fake birds and then there wasn't that was the kind of controversial 
I mean, I think there's a couple of controversial things, um, but that uh, in that scene, she like. They actually had real birds in that attic, and she. F- oh, is oh. that is that true? I didn't realize that. Wow, that's like one of the like. There's a few kind of controversies about the way she was treated on this set yeah. from Hitchcock, and that was one of them. Was that he told her it would be fake birds, but then they had real birds in that scene. I would have oh, had wow. a heart attack. I hate birds. Yeah, and this movie no, is why I hate birds. Yes, <laughs> like yeah, from so, the same Emily. <laughs> going back to to you though, Mary Beth, when. Because you sort of talked about it in your about your your class, but when did when did you first see this film, and what what was its effect on you? So I first saw this film when I was getting my master's. So it, I was old. I was like in my twenties. But the thing is, like I always knew about the birds, and I avoided it because I hated birds. Like I saw the title, the birds, and I was like, absolutely not. I already hate them. I can't do it. And so I would always like whenever I would see like a big like cloud of birds flying, I would like hide. I'd get anxiety. I was like, it's the birds, even though I had never actually seen it. So it was in my head as something. And it was like the the scariest thing I could have ever imagined. Um, And I watched it and it wasn't, but it was still really, really good. Um, And I also didn't, I didn't know anything about it. So I didn't know it was going to be like a goes from this, like, okay, like typical, maybe like little wig, not gothic, but like horror drama. And then it just becomes post-apocalyptic like, and the gas station explodes <laughs> yeah. and like the birds are attacking. Like it becomes this, we talked about this in my class, like it becomes a post-apocalyptic movie. And I had never known that. And it gives it, it's so weird, like the tonal shift that happens all of a sudden, but I absolutely adored it because it went from just like a kind of weird, creepy town energy to like full on disaster movie, which I love. Um, but so I want to tell a story about a dead bird because, <laughs> because this kind of like <laughs> colors my perception of birds and of the movie. So when I was younger, we live, had a really strange neighbor and he loved parrots. He would rescue macaws who had lived longer than their owners, which is hysterical and, and upsetting. But he always had like at least two or three macaws in his house. And then one day he knocks on the door and my mom answers it and he's standing there sobbing with one of the macaws in his arms. Oh my God. And he was like freaking out. He came into the house. My mom was like, what happened? And he's like, he flew up into the ceiling and broke his neck. And he oh gave no. the, my, my mom also hates birds. So he like put it in her arms and he was crying and didn't know what <laughs> no. to do. And my mom was like cradling this dead bird and had no idea what to do. And he asked her to help dig the grave. And she did in his backyard. What Jesus. the fuck? Isn't that weird? Like, I laugh at it now, but I now realize it is, like, a very awful and strange thing. But it was just, like, he came over with a dead bird, and it felt like it was a fake thing happening. I was like, what the hell is this? And it's just, like, so strange. And that's one of the reasons why birds scare the shit out of me. And, like, they just... Were you there? You were there for that then? Yes. And, um... It made my it makes my hair stand on end to thinking about birds and like the weird trauma that comes with them that is like very much individualized to my experience. But oh no, here but we are. there's something about dead birds specifically that's always freaked me out. I don't it's know so, what it I is. I don't know what yeah. it is. Yes. Oh my god. I don't. And I get so sad even though I don't like birds, and it feels like very sad to me for some reason when I see a dead bird. And I don't. I don't get it either. But it's like weirdly sadder than when I see like a dead mammal. I don't know why, but here I wow. am. You know, oh gosh, man, I I hadn't thought about this in in years, but I my first brush with death was because of a bird. Um, oh not with like <laughs> we're getting not really with my deep death, now. but like I know, I know. this is like a yeah. therapy session. Let's, let's talk about death and how we process it, and how birds are linked to death, and how life yeah. is fleeting. <laughs> and go. <laughs> I I just I remember being a, a kid and I was I lived in Alaska at this time and so I must have been maybe eight or nine and I found a dead bird and um I I decided to dig a hole and bury and bury the bird because probably because of of poltergeist now that I think about it oh my god um going back to that uh, that trauma um and I. So this is uh, this is really morbid, but I I wanted to make sure the the bird was okay later on, and so I dug it up again. Oh no! And it was like it was covered in in, in maggots oh, and God. gross worm things, and so that was my first like real experience with what happens to things when they die. Was this poor bird that I had buried and wanted to check on? Are you later fu- on? Are you fucking joking? I did the same exact thing, Terry. 
<laughs> no, seriously? I did the same exact thing. Because I thought that birds went to heaven, and I thought heaven meant you wouldn't be in the ground anymore. So I went to check if he went to heaven, and he wasn't in heaven. He was in the oh, turn. No. Oh, God. This is getting very intense. I'm so sorry, yeah. Amelia. No, it's, it's interesting. Yeah, the house that I grew up in uh, like was like these front stairs and like a front porch, and there was these two really big trees as you walked out. And there was crows living in the trees that normally would leave you alone, but when they have babies they like are get really protective so when you would leave oh, the house yeah. they would like dive bomb you and oh my so God. Oh, yeah that was really freaky and then one day i opened the door and like i guess one of the little uh baby birds had fallen and it was just like a dead bird fetus basically <laughs> like uh, <laughs> no it's on my worst. friend's step as i'm like going to school and, like, so. <laughs> good morning <laughs> so oh yeah God. they're just they're always there it's weird it's wow. bizarre okay we've all bonded over bird trauma it's good to- <laughs> <laughs> going with your your apocalyptic uh comments about it that was what really surprised me about the film was how epic it feels in such a very yeah. self like small self-contained area of this bodega bay because like even though like it, it doesn't look as as good now as as it did back in the 60s the kind of overhead shot of the the exploding gas station and like the fire that that is set from the guy that is smoking the cigar and like ends up blowing up on screen from that like that to that shot where the birds are like hovering over the town and you see like the fire on the ground it has a very like end of the world um well zombie apocalypse but with bird type feel to it yes that's exactly what it was and i Specifically the ending, I kind of wanted to talk about because I, when I took my class, this was film class, we talked about how like there's like pessimistic and optimistic readings of the movie. Um, especially cause like the end shot there, they've finally gotten out to the car and they're driving and there's destruction and there's birds, but they've somehow made it out. And so I had people tell me like, Oh, there's hope for the future. And to me, I was like, everything's gone. Like it's the apocalypse. Nothing will be the same. So, Oh yeah. I don't know how that okay, can feel. Like, I was wondering that. Cause like we talked about there being optimism to it. And I was like, is, am I just really like pessimistic? Because I don't see that at all. So, okay. I'm glad I'm not crazy. <laughs> I was like, I have to bring it up. What do you think, Terry? Um, I mean, I, I don't see anything. Pe- uh, uh, I don't see anything pessimistic about this movie whatsoever. No, um, <laughs> No, I. It's it so life affirming. Enjoyable. No, I, I definitely think that it's a pessimistic ending. I, I, even though, like, I, I have a feeling that it was it was not supposed to be because I, when the DVD of this movie came out, um, they there was like um, interviews with the the screenwriter where he was surprised when he saw the movie because he had written a longer ending that has them driving through the town seeing all the havoc that's been that's been wrecked on on this town where it's like there was even in the imagery and it was even more apocalyptic there was like um an image of of a, a farmer that's sitting there with a, a shotgun in his lap it's been pecked to death and there's oh. like dead birds and cars and flames and his description was that a war has been waged against the town and they even apparently like I guess they shot some of this the sequences because someone was talking about how like a, the prop man went to a butcher and got dead chickens that they just sort of laid across the town and like smeared ketchup on on the the walls for for blood and then they were supposed to follow them leaving town and getting attacked because you know they set up in the in the very beginning that she has like a, a convertible and so there's an attack on the convertible that tears open the the kind of cloth top on it and then they eventually leave town. And there was another thing that they wanted to shoot but couldn't get done was a Golden Gate Bridge was covered in birds and it was going to be another Whoa. like ending to the film. So like, I think that they were originally going to even hammer home on like <laughs> the very pessimistic view that this is the end. Um, yeah, because if you see a shot of the Golden Gate Bridge, it's like, oh, it's right, everywhere. Exactly. Now. Obviously, that's not everywhere, but you're that's you yeah, know what it's the implication, which is. Yeah. So, and he was surprised. He, he, I guess he was like saying that, you know, it would have taken a lot of time to film that ending. So that's probably why they didn't do it. It would have been an expensive ending for the film. But like, I don't see how you can see this as anything other than bleak. 
Yeah, I would agree. And especially because, like, hearing about the alternate end, or, like, the alternate ending, it seems like it was very much supposed to be like, oh, this isn't just Bodega Bay. This is, like, the world. And I think they allude to that, though, when they hear the radio. At the end, they hear them talking about it, like, all over the coast, correct? Am I misremembering that? Okay. Yeah, yeah, he turns on the radio, um... I can't remember if they say it's reached San Francisco, but there's it kind of uh, implies that. That's all that bisexual energy. It's being released across the coast. <laughs> Are birds bisexual? Go. Damn San Francisco. <laughs> Are birds you know, bisexual, though? Is that what the implication of the birds is? <laughs> you know, one of my favorite moments of this, well, two of my favorite moments of this, of this movie, though, is the fact that they do put kids in peril. Yes! Like, oh, I was surprised God. at how many kids are being, like, pecked to death in this movie yeah no one is safe i was kind of waiting for one of the kids to die which i don't remember happening but i was like are they gonna go there like that would be kind of cool um not cool <laughs> oh cool. no it wouldn't be cool <laughs> no. though I feel like especially movies from then like wouldn't hurt kids like kids were sacred it was taboo to do that yeah which would make it would make it really harsh though there's still some pretty intense imagery for the time like the guy blowing up essentially or getting lit on fire you like see it happen and then the dead body that the mother discovers with the pecked out eyes amazing and also horrifying like the tension in that part oh my god and it's a very shocking image, I feel like, even by today's standards. Like, a lot of the film is obviously very dated, but that image I felt, like, really held up and I could imagine for the time would be totally When freaky. I loved how the camera kind of, like, does three quick zooms in on his face to, yes! like, hammer home yeah. the fact that his eyes have been fucking pecked out. Casual. <laughs> It's so it's it's so grim and that but I love that whole sequence just from when she enters the house and there's the focus on the broken china that's like hanging there and everything is so mm-hmm. quiet and you know she walks into the bedroom and there's a bird that's been smashed into the window there's another window that's been shattered there's a dead bird on the on the bed Oh yeah yeah that was and then you see the legs and then it's the boom 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 this dude's has his eyes pecked out I just I loved I love the yeah. way that scene was staged and going back to the scene, Terry, with the kids and the birds, I really want to get a tattoo of, like, a simplistic tattoo of, like, the jungle gym with all of the birds perched on it. Oh, like, yeah. that is one of my favorite moments in the entire film. It's just so still and so intense. And I think I was so surprised at how scared I felt watching this movie, even in my 20s. Like, Hitchcock really is such a master of suspense and tension. And I haven't seen a lot of his movies. So, I mean, I knew it was going to be kind of scary, but I didn't realize how stressful this movie was like it is just especially the end in the house like it's just stress and anxiety yeah completely and that the scene with the playground is yes! so well constructed mm-hmm. and hearing the kids singing is also creepy because you're right there's no music but we hear the you know these kids singing which yes! is super creepy and then the way when she walks off the camera is like kind of her pov and it's like kind of uh tracking over kind of going behind a tree and that image is really unsettling too because you just know she's trying to get away but they could start moving at any point and like it's it's really tense again with the fear of the birds it makes something that you see every day and like feels like there's just like totally harmless into like absolutely horrifying and you don't realize how many birds are around you until you watch this movie and you're like jesus christ jesus christ they're They're everywhere everywhere. So do we want to wrap up and share our final thoughts about the birds? That sounds good. Cool. Okay, Terry, how many exploding cars out of five do you give the birds? What are your final thoughts? Oh, man. Um, You know, (laughs) (laughs) um, I... I really enjoyed this this movie. I don't know if I like it as much as as I expected to, to be honest. Um, I don't know. I I, I do think it's a tad too long. I'll okay. be honest. That's true. Yeah, I um, yeah. When I for saw sure. it, it was two hours long. I was like, "Wow!" I, I I think it's. I think I don't. I don't think it's his best work, but I do think it is a really interesting, um, a post-apocalyptic tale that we you don't see an awful lot of. And I I do think that there. It's obviously iconic. I do think it influenced Romero with taking the the undead and, and putting them in a farmhouse. I do think that some of the, the, the shots in this movie have been obviously parodied throughout time, especially with, with the, the scene with the on the playground. Uh-huh. Um I 
I would say I think I give this one three and a half exploding cars out of five. Okay. Um, it's not my favorite Hitchcock, but I think it is. It's really well done, especially for what it was trying to do. And I'm always here for that kind of chaotic queer reading Hell of yeah. movies that I. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Mary Beth? I'm gonna give it four exploding cars out of five. Okay. I well, one you adding the like queer reading on top of it makes me love it even more. Um, it makes it even more like fascinating to me. I thought this movie was so. Sh- I think it was because the movie was so shocking to me, and like I had this narrative around it my whole life. And when oh, I yeah. saw it, it was so much more than I expected, and so much more than I knew I wanted out of a movie like this. And so it just absolutely floored me when I saw it, and from like. Again, the t- obviously the tonal shift is really stuck with me when the car explodes and everything just goes to absolute hell. <laughs> but then to like the gore in a way, like it's go- it's gorier than I expected too, and it's just it really is. It's just such a fascinating piece of fi- cinema that came out of the nineteen sixties, and it just feels so different and awesome and good. And it's like one of those movies that I wish I had seen earlier, but I'm also glad I watched it when I was older so I could really appreciate it for what it is. So that's my score. Amelia, you have the final word. How many exploding cars out of five do you give the birds? Yeah, I think I would go with 3.5 as well, because I agree that it is too long. And I did find like it takes a long time to kind of get to the good stuff, I guess. Um, But when you get to that point, like there's some really incredible scenes. And um, I think there's some really interesting choices, like to have no music or the way the sound really like just focuses on the birds or whatever. And, um, some really great scenes like the, the, um, playground scene. And then the one where the power goes out and all the birds are trying to get in. Like, I think you're right, Terry. I think that's probably being kind of influential for kind of future horror filmmakers as well. Cause it is very horror, like just, yeah. you know, the lighting and everything and the sound and like everything about it is, is very kind of iconic. Yeah. Now I will say that I if <laughs> if Annie and and Melanie decided to run off and Annie didn't die protecting a stupid kid, I would <laughs> be five would out of five. Five out of five. It would be five out of five forever. <laughs> Oh, wow. Well, thank you, Amelia, for joining us to talk about the birds. Uh, where can our listeners find you? And where do, do you know where you're can you share where your movie is playing next if 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 people wanted to check it out? Yeah, so uh, Bleed With Me as well as Bloodthirsty will be in Blood in the Snow beginning of November, I think. Um, They just released the schedule. And so that will be Canada only. Um, And then for if there's any UK listeners, um, we have a few festivals coming up for Bleed With Me. Um, The Abattoir Film Festival, um, which is in Wales, which is October 30th, I think. And then the Soho Horror Fest, which is beginning of November as well. So again, those are those are specific to the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, that's all I think right now for kind of upcoming screenings. Um, but uh, yeah, cool. And um, where can our listeners find you on the internet if they want to follow you? Uh, yeah, I guess for like film stuff, um, my Twitter is at Amelia D Moses, and um, yeah, that's. I don't use it that much, but for kind of film stuff um, or my website is ameliamoses.com. Awesome. So listeners, you've heard from us, but we want to hear from you. What was your experience with the birds? You can send us an email at scarredforlightpodcast at gmail.com or reach out to us directly on Twitter. You can follow me at MB McAndrews. And I'm at Gailey Dreadful. And of course, make sure to keep the conversation going by chatting with the podcast on Twitter at scarredpodcast. And please don't forget to review, rate, and subscribe. Thank you to Steve Barnold for our artwork. Thank you to Sean Keller for our music. Thank you to everyone for listening. Stay safe out there, but most importantly, stay creepy. And until next time.
When you pick up some scratches, cause you want a fun break. The playful way you scratch is the next choice you should make. You can make your dog's leg kick and scratch with that. You could even grab a laser pointer and use your cap. You could build yourself a homemade scratching machine. Or use a piece from your chest set. Go ahead, grab the queen. Scratch like a DJ with your record player. A cactus could scratch off that scratchable layer. Cause when it comes to scratching, there's a million playful ways. Thanks to scratches from the California lottery, a little play can make your day. Please play responsibly. Must be 18 years or older to purchase, play, or claim. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also, small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to LinkedIn.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, this is Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm, Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you, add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm, Voluma XC, and reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Velour XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site, redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.